patrons heard this episode first. If you'd like to join our Patreon, visit the link in our show notes or go to patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. It's been over a decade since Susan Powell vanished without a trace, leaving behind a husband who was quickly deemed the prime suspect. But as the investigation progressed, more questions than answers began to surface. Was this a case of a family man driven to the edge? Or was there something more sinister at play? As we peel back the layers of this complex case, we'll explore the twisted web of deceit and tragedy that surrounds the disappearance of Susan Powell. Murder, suicide, voyeurism, religion. There are so many twists and turns to this story. But ultimately, what everyone wants to know is what happened to her and where is she now? Her name, Susan Powell. This is her story. Still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Susan Marie Powell was born Susan Marie Cox on October 16, 1981, in Almogordo, New Mexico, to her father Charles and mother Judy. When Susan was still young, her parents moved to Alaska before eventually settling in Washington State. Susan and her siblings were raised in the Church of Latter-day Saints. She was known as an enthusiastic and optimistic person who was always willing to help others. Her family says that when growing up, she was a typical teenage girl. She rode horses and loved hanging out with her friends. One of her three sisters described her as their partner in crime. Even when Susan had a teenage rebellious streak, it didn't last long because she was just too good at heart. After finishing high school, Susan became a cosmetologist so that she could help others feel good about themselves. In November 2000, when Susan was 19, she met the man who would become her husband, Joshua Powell. Like Susan, Josh had been raised by his parents, Stephen and Terica, in the LDS Church, or the Mormon Church. His parents had a rocky marriage, and after years of fighting, they went through an even more acrimonious divorce. Later reports regarding Josh's childhood claimed that Stephen was extremely strict and that he targeted Josh more than his other four siblings. By the time of the divorce, Stephen had grown disillusioned with the LDS church. He accused his ex-wife of witchcraft and devil worship. She fired back with claims that Stephen had had multiple affairs and showed pornography to their children. After the divorce, Josh and his brothers lived with their dad, Stephen, while the girls lived with their mom, except for a short period when they all lived with Stephen. As a teenager, Josh suffered from depression. He had attempted suicide a number of times before he met Susan. It's unclear if he was ever medicated or sought help. As Josh reached his adult years, he seemed to have turned his life around as he started college where he was working towards his degree in business. He'd also moved out of his dad's house into his own place, and it wasn't long before his path crossed with Susan's. Less than six months after meeting, the couple were married in an LDS church temple in Portland. At the time, Susan was working as a cosmetologist while Josh studied, and between them, they didn't have much money to spare. Their wedding was simple, and they were trying to save for the first home. In order to do that, they decided to move in with Josh's dad for a while so that they wouldn't be spending money on rent. This decision would spark a series of events which would become more poignant and significant in Susan's disappearance. Unbeknownst to the young couple, Stephen had developed an infatuation with his daughter-in-law, Susan. 
Initially, Stephen creepily followed her around the house and spied on her using a mirror. But his lust quickly became dangerous when he began taking voyeuristic photos and video recordings of Susan while she was in the bathroom or getting changed in her room. He stole her underwear, took her used tampons out of the trash, and when she was out of the house, he went into her room and read her journals. At the same time, Stephen was posting online under a pseudonym about his obsession with his daughter-in-law including lyrics to songs he wrote about her. One such song is titled Waiting For You, and it goes like this. I could be getting a mistaken impression each time you seem to gaze at me. You let me touch you softly. Why, is the question. And the effect amazes me. You made my eyes pop out of their sockets. You could empty all of my pockets. This flirtation isn't rocket science. You came along and really knocked my socks off. Now you're all I think and talk of so much for my former self-reliance. When Susan cottoned on to what was happening, she told Josh and demanded that they move into their own place. Reports differ as to whether Josh ever confronted his father about his behavior, but friends of Susan say that he was well aware of what his father was up to. With the tension escalating inside Stephen's home, the couple decided to move into their own apartment. By then, Josh had finished his study, but didn't have a job and Susan was supporting them both financially. Despite living in their own place, the situation between Susan and Stephen continued to intensify. He would visit the apartment with no warning, and at times when he knew Josh wouldn't be home. In one instance, he offered to give Susan a massage, and he later recorded a video journal where he considered her agreement to be a sign from her that she wanted a physical relationship with him. Off the back of this supposed revelation, in July 2003, Stephen offered to give Susan a ride in his car to her parents' house. He set up his camcorder in the back of the car and recorded the moment when he confessed his feelings for her and asked her to enter a relationship with him. In the recording, Susan's discomfort is clear and she unreservedly turned Stephen down. Less than six months later, Josh and Susan moved to Utah in an attempt to get as far away as possible from Stephen. Susan wrote in her journal that she hoped the move would help repair the tension that had grown between her and Josh because of Stephen's actions. Initially, it seemed to work, and Josh cut off all communication with his father. Once they were settled in Utah, Susan did a complete 180 on her career. She moved from cosmetology into the finance world. She saved enough money for them to buy a home and found a new church, which would become her community. Meanwhile, Josh had also tried to work in finance, but he was fired. He told Susan that he was going to change career paths and become a real estate agent. The shift in careers wasn't the only change in their lives at this time. In 2004, Susan and Josh found out that they were pregnant with their first child. Susan had often talked about her dreams of becoming a mom. So when she gave birth to her son, Charlie, in 2005, and then Brayden in 2007, her family knew that she had found her true calling. She was a loving mom who doted on her two boys. They were the center of her universe. She hadn't wanted to go back to work after maternity leave ended with Charlie, but Josh was still not bringing in a substantial income. So they were dependent on Susan going back to work to fund their lifestyle. Even with that, times were still tough financially for them and the church would cover their groceries and utilities sometimes. It should come at no surprise that finances were a source of tension between Josh and Susan. But of course, that wasn't their only issue. Josh had also grown up in the faith and he met Susan at an LDS event. But over the years, his interest in religion had waned. Susan attempted to encourage him and persuade him to attend services with her, but 
He was increasingly dismissive of the church and her interest in it. Just like his dad, Josh began to talk about witchcraft and conspiracies in relation to church beliefs. In Susan's journals and emails to friends, which were released at the wake of her disappearance, she often commented how her husband had changed in the eight years they had been married. Quote, he used to buckle me in and give me a kiss, hold doors open, sincerely worry if I didn't put on a coat, buy groceries and help me cook, clean, or cook and clean for himself, hang out and talk together, watch movies and relaxing TV just for entertainment, care and make time for being with friends, group dates, etc. Go to church, not be all radical about the latest huge world problems that all of his rantings can't fix, although he thinks he can. But when we moved to Utah, and more specifically, when he got interested in being self-employed slash working, and then we had Charlie, his priorities seemed to have changed. In another passage, she says, I want him in counseling, on meds. I want my husband, friend, lover back. No more crazy, outrageous, outlandish beliefs, opinions. I know everyone else will support me in whatever decisions, even if that means crash anyone's house in the middle of the night with my boys in tow. Hope that never happens. Or stay with him. But believe me, my bottom line is he will do counseling. I'm sure if he fixes himself, everyone else will see a much closer version of the guy I married, and it will be easy enough to forget the hell and turmoil he's put me through. While her journals don't go into explicit details about the hell she mentioned, friends later spoke about Josh being controlling and abusive throughout their marriage. It will come as a little surprise that the addition of two children into that marriage did little to fix the problems between them. So when Susan decided to quit her job after Brayden was born to be a stay-at-home mom, the strain reached a new peak. Josh had considerable debt from his time as a student, and without Susan's income, they were forced to file for bankruptcy. Eventually, Susan knew she would have to go to work, and she got a new job at Wells Fargo Investments. Meanwhile, Josh was still not earning enough to meaningfully contribute to their expenses, and yet he was spending money like a person with no limit. He strictly controlled what Susan was allowed to spend, and he made her deposit her paycheck into a joint account which he emptied every single week. Susan wrote in her journal, quote, He is mainly emotionally, verbally, and financially abusive. Basically, I'm a single mother with this guy that lives with me and dictates to me what I can do in my spare time and takes my paycheck and spends the money. But despite everything that was wrong in their marriage, Susan seemed determined to make it work. She had discussed divorce with her church elders, but they all agreed she would regret it if she didn't try every other alternative before going down that path. So Susan attended couples counseling. But despite the name, she was usually alone as Josh refused to have the church involved in his personal affairs. Looking back, the first indication that their marital tension and stress had morphed into something dangerous was when Josh took out a $500,000 life insurance policy on Susan in June 2007. And within a year, he had increased the policy to $1 million. Susan could clearly sense the shift too, because at the same time as the policy was increased, she hand wrote a will on a piece of paper, writing, I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work, which would not be accessible to my husband. I want it documented somewhere that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. He has threatened to skip the country and told me straight out, if we divorce, there will be no lawyers, only a mediator, and I will ruin you. 
your life would be over and the boys will not grow up with a mom and dad. If something happens to me, please talk to my sister-in-law, Jenny Graves, my friend, Kersey Hellwell. Check my blogs on MySpace. Check my work desk. Talk to my friends, coworkers, and family. It's an open fact that we have life insurance policies of over a million if we die in the next four years. Coworkers, family, and friends hear me say this occasionally. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. I want my parents, Judy and Chuck Cox, very involved and in charge of their lives. I love my boys. I live for them. And I choose not to cheat or do drugs because I wouldn't want to risk losing them. End quote. A month later, she recorded a video with much of the same information, as well as showing their family home and belongings, which she referred to as assets. A week after she made the video, she opened a safe deposit box at a local bank which she filled with bank statements, birth certificates, and other important paperwork. These are not actions of a woman who was planning on abandoning her family. And yet, that is exactly what Susan would be accused of in the wake of her disappearance. On the morning of December 6th, Susan and her sons went to church, and that afternoon, they had a visit from a neighbor. This is the last known sighting of Susan. When she failed to show up at her job at Wells Fargo on Monday, December 7th, 2009, her employer made a number of attempts to contact her. That same morning, the children's child care provider became concerned when the boys weren't dropped off by the time they usually arrived, which was 6.40 a.m. By 8 a.m., with no word from Susan, the child care provider attempted to call her, first on the home phone, then to Susan's direct line at work. When there was no answer at either number, the child care provider called the Wells Fargo branch that Susan worked at's main line. It was then that they were informed that Susan had been absent at work that day. When attempts to contact Josh were unsuccessful, Josh's sister was notified of Susan's absence as she was in emergency contact. She rushed over to the Powell home and called 911 along the way. There was no answer to their knocks at the door, and when the police arrived, the family told the officer that there had been trouble with the furnace and that the family might have fallen victim to carbon monoxide poisoning. The officers then forced entry into the home. And now a word from today's sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. As someone with two jobs, a husband, and lots of pets, I'm sure a lot of you can relate when I say it's hard to focus on myself when I'm so busy giving my time to taking care of everything going on in the house and keeping my dogs alive and keeping my husband fed. So I'm sure everyone can relate when I say it's so easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from us and never take a moment to think about what we actually need for ourselves. But when we spend all our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burned out, and that's never fun. Therapy is something we can all use to give us the tools to find more balance in our lives. That way, we can keep supporting the ones we loved without leaving ourselves behind. I myself have used BetterHelp and other forms of therapy, and I learn something new every time. From positive coping skills to boundary setting, therapy is so empowering and can help you be the best version of yourself. And by the way, it's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. We can all benefit from it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time with no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp today. Visit betterhelp.com slash murder diaries to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P 
com slash murder diaries. Inside, there was no sign of Susan, Josh, or either of the two children. But the stereo was on, the family's minivan was gone, and two fans were on in the living room pointing towards the bottom of the couch, which looked like it had recently been cleaned. Josh's sister also noticed Susan's purse on the kitchen bench. The family of four were immediately declared missing. Meanwhile, The neighbor who had visited Susan the day before she disappeared noticed the commotion and came over to speak to the officers. She told them what the pair had talked about the prior evening and that Josh had been acting strangely when she was there. She also recalled that she had seen Josh and the two boys leave the house on Sunday night around 5.30 p.m. On the day of the family's disappearance, that same neighbor had also made a number of attempts to contact Josh, all without success. That was until she asked her son to call from his number, and Josh answered. He asked where he was and told Josh that everyone was trying to find them all. Josh simply answered that he was down south and that he would be home soon. At 5.30 p.m., the night of Susan's disappearance, Josh called his sister and told her that he was at work and had the boys. Except she knew he wasn't at work because everyone with any association with Josh and Susan had been contacted while they were trying to find out what had happened to the family. Then Josh told her the story that he would stick to until the very end. He told his sister he had taken the boys camping. When she asked where Susan was, Josh gave his sister no explanation other than to say his wife was at work. By then, the sister had grown very concerned about Susan's well-being, but also the safety of her two nephews. She feared her brother was having some sort of breakdown and encouraged him to come home. Initially, Josh refused until an officer spoke to him on the phone and told him he needed to return immediately. Thankfully, Josh took the officer's advice and returned to the family home with the boys unharmed. He was then taken to the police station for questioning in regards to his wife's whereabouts. Josh claimed that the last time he saw Susan was on the previous Sunday at around 12.30 a.m. when they were getting ready to go to bed. He told the officers that On the Sunday evening, Susan had eaten dinner and before she went to bed at around 10 p.m., she demanded Josh clean the couch, which, according to him, explained the fans. After Susan went to bed, he made a spur-of-the-moment decision to take the boys camping in a snowstorm in Utah in the middle of winter. He had left the house and assumed Susan had gone to work the following morning, though he couldn't explain how she would have traveled there seeing as he took their only vehicle with him. In the minivan, detectives found camping supplies, a large comforter, a tarp, an extension cord, a circular saw, a box cutter, a gas can, a generator, a shovel, and a rake. They also found Susan's phone inside the center console, despite Josh telling them that he didn't know where it was. On the phone, they found a voicemail Josh had left Susan after his sister had called about Susan being missing. In the voicemail, Josh apologized for not picking her up from work. Two days after she was last seen, the police announced that Susan's disappearance was suspicious. Meanwhile, four-year-old Charlie was interviewed by child specialists, and he made a startling revelation. When asked whom he went camping with, he described all four of the family going together. Later, one of Charlie's teachers stated that he had told her his mother was dead. Brayden also reportedly told his teacher, quote, mommy was in the trunk. Everything was pointing at Josh being involved in his wife's disappearance. But inexplicably, officials decided to let him return home. In the following days, he was seen cleaning the minivan, throwing out huge bags of rubbish, burning objects, which have never been identified, and washing piles of towels from inside the house. 
Samples taken from inside the house also show the presence of Susan's blood on the floor of the home as well as her handwritten will and documentation regarding her life insurance policy. But that isn't all that was odd about Josh's behavior. While members of Susan's family and community were out searching for her, Josh showed barely any interest in the investigation. He didn't ask for progress reports. He couldn't provide any solid leads on where Susan might go. And he told detectives that his son's statements about them camping together were simply lies. On top of his already odd behavior, Josh emptied Susan's retirement fund, closed her bank account, and rented a vehicle from the airport. In less than a day, he put 807 miles on the clock with no explanation as to where he had gone. And when he got home, he packed all the family's belongings and moved out of the house to move back in with his father. Despite all the growing circumstantial evidence pointing towards Josh being involved in Susan's disappearance, Josh wasn't charged, although he was named as a person of interest. For the next few months, Josh managed to fly mostly under the radar. He avoided the media except for an interview on Good Morning America where he reiterated that he had nothing to do with Susan's disappearance. And then his father, Stephen, came back on the scene. He joined the Good Morning America interview to state his belief that Susan had run off with another man, saying, Susan was uh, very, very sexual with me. She was very flirtatious. I mean, I'm, I'm her father-in-law, and uh, she, she would do a lot of things that, that um, I mean, she was just, she did it. I did, I mean, we, we interacted in a lot of sexual ways because Susan enjoys doing that. These comments prompted a number of Susan's friends to make contact with the police. They tipped them off to the existence of Susan's journals. And when officials searched Stephen's home to find them, they got a lot more than they had bargained for. On top of more than 4,500 videos and photos of Susan, there were thousands of other images of underage girls that Stephen had also filmed without their knowledge. In September 2011, Stephen was arrested and charged with voyeurism and child pornography. He pleaded not guilty, but was sentenced to five years in prison. It was around the same time it was revealed that Josh's brother, Michael, had gotten rid of his vehicle at some kind of wrecker the night Susan went missing. The car was found by authorities, and when cadaver dogs went over to the vehicle, they indicated that a human body had been in the vehicle at some point. DNA was gathered from the vehicle, but all the tests came back inconclusive. Despite that inconclusive result, it added further concern that Josh had been involved in making his wife disappear with the assistance of his brother. Up until the time of Stephen's arrest, Josh had been living with his sons in Stephen's home, along with some of his other siblings. The day after his arrest, Susan's parents successfully applied for temporary custody of the children after arguing that the environment in the house was unsafe for them. The custody ruling came with a number of conditions, including a requirement that Josh undergo a series of psychiatric evaluations. He was also told that if he wanted to regain custody, he needed to be living in his own house. Toward the end of 2011, one of the psychiatric evaluations concluded that Josh had been traumatized by his violent upbringing. Despite struggling to admit normal person shortcomings and being overly paranoid and defensive, the report found that Josh had adequate parenting skills and no record of domestic violence. Therefore, the psychiatrist recommended giving Josh regular supervised visitation with the boys. The way the supervised visitation worked was that the social worker would drive the boys from their grandparents' house to Josh's house. They would watch over all interactions between the boys and their father, and then return the boys once the visit was done. 
On February 5, 2011, when the social worker arrived at the residence, the boys ran towards the home, and Josh opened the door and let them in. By the time the social worker got to the door, it was locked, and she was unable to gain entry into the house. She retreated from the home and called 911 to report Josh's strange behavior and to advise the operator that she could smell gas coming from the home. Before emergency services could arrive, the home exploded. Josh, Braden, and Charlie were all killed in the explosion. But it wasn't a gas leak. Minutes before the explosion, Josh had sent an email to his attorney, which can be described only as a simple and short suicide note. While many reference the murder-suicide as proof, Josh was involved in Susan's disappearance. His family disagreed. They claimed that his actions weren't those of a guilty man. They were actions of a desperate man who had been harassed by the police until he reached a breaking point. From their perspective, on top of being under suspicion for his wife's disappearance, he was facing the likely prospect of losing custody of his sons, and the court-ordered evaluations were contributing to a deterioration in his mental health. An investigation into the explosion would later reveal that Josh had meticulously planned his and his son's deaths. He had transferred money, donated clothing and belongings, and purchased multiple five-gallon gas cans filled with gasoline. Brayden and Charlie had died from carbon monoxide poisoning, but their autopsy also showed some chopping wounds on their heads and neck, indicating Josh had attacked them before the explosion. Fire investigators determined that the boys had gasoline poured on and around them before being set alight. An investigation was also opened into the actions of the 911 operator that the social worker had spoken to moments before the explosion. That operator had failed to take the social worker's concerns seriously and had advised that an officer would drive past when they had a chance, despite the involvement of two young children in the incident. Susan's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state of Washington in the wake of the murders of their grandsons. They won the suit and were awarded $98 million. One year after Josh murdered his sons and killed himself, his brother Michael jumped from the roof of a parking garage, killing himself instantly. Officials would later comment that they suspected Josh and Michael were accomplices in Susan's disappearance and likely murder. At the time of her disappearance, Susan was five foot, four inches tall. She weighed 130 pounds with long brown hair and blue eyes. No sign of her or her remains has ever been located. There's another interesting twist in this case, which we would be remiss to overlook. Susan went missing the same week as another Utah resident, Stephen Kocher. While linking them together by the week they went missing doesn't seem significant, there are other similarities between the two cases, which have served to further indicate that there might be a connection between the two, at least in the minds of those who continue to defend Josh. Let's start with a brief overview of Stephen's disappearance and then take a look at what those similarities are. In the middle of the day on December 13th, 2009, Stephen was recorded on CCTV footage parking at the end of a cul-de-sac in Henderson, Nevada. He's seen retrieving something from the vehicle and then walking away, never to be seen again. No one noticed he was missing for a few days until residents of the cul-de-sac notified the police about this abandoned vehicle. Stephen lived in Utah, and the reason for his trip to Nevada was never ascertained. For the two days after Stephen had been seen on the security footage, there was activity on his cell phone. But after that, none. 
There was no suspicious internet searches, no bank activity, and no indication that he wanted to hurt himself. And definitely no explanation for why he had driven so far in the days before he went missing. Susan and Steve are similar in age. They're both members of the LDS church. They both visited West Valley City in the days before they disappeared. And the day Susan disappeared was the day Stephen began acting erratically before he went missing completely. It was actually Josh's dad, Steve, who made the connection between the two cases. He'd been monitoring the news in relation to Susan's disappearance and came across a story about Steve Kocher. In 2010, not long after Susan had gone missing, he notified law enforcement about his concerns and set to work finding out more about both Susan and Steve to present to authorities. After an initial meeting with agents from the RAJ and the FBI, he presented a nine-page case file with everything he had learned, which he believed tied the two cases together. In the document, Stephen Powell presented what he believed is irrefutable evidence that Susan didn't disappear, instead that she had absconded. He linked Susan and Stephen together romantically. Not only did Josh's dad present Susan as a woman who had run off with another man, he told the police he had reason to believe that they were hiding in Brazil. What were his reasons for that? Well, he claimed that Susan had once mentioned that she had Portuguese ancestry and wanted to learn the language to better understand her heritage. And of course, he made sure to mention that his son had nothing to do with her going missing. The document was full of passive-aggressive digs at Susan, like that she was obsessed with how she looked and that she changed her hair every couple of weeks. Overall, the bulk of that document focuses on Susan's inability to parent and sexual prowess as being signs that she wanted to disappear. It attempts to prove that she was having an affair with Stephen Kocher and that she had probably gotten pregnant with him, which he knew because he said that she had put on a lot of weight recently. Stephen Powell made sure to stress that Susan would be more willing to abandon her children and frame her husband because of her mental issues stemming from childhood. This all came from the same man who would later be found with thousands of intimate images he took of Susan without her consent. So it's difficult to consent how much weight should be given to his horrendous allegations. But even those who write off Stephen's ulterior motives agree that there could be a connection between those disappearances. Investigators state that they have thoroughly investigated these alleged links between the two cases, and they found no evidence that they're connected. In 2013, West Valley City Police announced that the investigation into Susan's disappearance was officially closed. In 2018, Stephen Powell died. Officials don't believe he had anything to do with Susan's disappearance, but that his involvement in the case contributed to Josh's final action of murdering his sons and taking his own life. Susan's disappearance has been featured on a number of TV shows and specials, but with all of the players in her case now dead, it seems unlikely that her parents or sisters will ever know what truly happened to her. May Susan, Charlie, and Brayden rest in peace. Until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.